1: chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices message and data rates may apply jp morgan chase a member fdic 2024 jp morgan chase and co the most innovative companies are going further with t-mobile for business the pga of america is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with ai coaching tools and 5g connected cameras
0: A few years ago, I got a terrifying phone call. The police were at my parents' house. They'd been called by my brother who was living with our parents at the time. I got in my car and rushed over. I made what was normally a 12-minute drive in five minutes flat. When I got there, I tried to slow my heart down. I carefully walked through the front door so as not to alarm the officers. My mission, simple, get the police out, away from my family. I'm Ibram X. Kendi, and this is Be Anti-Racist. The intense fear I just described, it was about the hazards of racism, of course, but it was about something else as well. My brother has a learning disability. At the time he called the cops on our parents, he was in his mid-30s and struggling to find employment. It was a difficult time for him. When I entered the house, it was with the full understanding of the racist and ableist violence in this country when police are involved. I always fear for my brother's life around the police. In the United States, as many as half of the people who are killed by police are people with disabilities. And the fact that my brother had been struggling to find work? Nothing unusual about it. The unemployment rate for people of color with disabilities is much higher than the national average, and higher than that of white Americans with disabilities. As an historian, I know how deeply racism and ableism are intertwined in America. Starting in the 17th century, colonizers did not just call Native Americans racially inferior, They called them physically and mentally incapable of adapting to so-called civilization. And they went on to use this ableist framework to rationalize enslavement, force removal, and genocide. Well into the 19th century, slaveholders used racist, ableist ideas about Black people's supposed mental inferiority to justify slavery. In the 20th century, eugenicists deployed ideas of feeble-mindedness to forcibly sterilize Black, Latinx, and Indigenous women. Today, low-income and students of color are disproportionately assigned to special education classes, and young people of color with disabilities are more likely to face the gallows of incarceration. All of this was on my mind as I stepped into my parents' house. All of this kept me focused. Within minutes, the officers were walking out the door. I was closing it. I was turning to rest my back against it. I was exhaling, feeling as if our lives had been spared. I've never shared that story before. It has been unbelievably hard to share a memory that's so wrapped in anger over what my brother has experienced in his life. He never told me when he was being bullied at school. He never told me when he was being bullied at work. He didn't tell me until long afterwards because he knew what I would do. He protected me when I wanted to protect him. I carry so much shame for not doing more to fight for him and fight against this structural problem. My brother is in a better place now, but not in a place free of racism and ableism. I know how deeply the connection between racism and ableism still affects all of us. It's time to have more public conversations about what we can all do to change things. Today's show is for my older brother. I love you. Welcome to Be Anti-Racist, an action podcast where we discuss how to diagnose, dismantle, and abolish racism. How to save humanity from the divisiveness of racist ideas and the destructiveness of racist power and policy. How to free humanity through the unity of anti-racist ideas and the constructiveness of anti-racist power and policy. We were all born into a world of racist ideas, many of which I myself consumed as a young man in New York and Virginia. Throughout my life, I've had to come to grips with some of the things that I imagined and thought were true about the world and the people in it. And like all of us, I'm still learning. In my pursuit of understanding, I became an historian. I've written books, been on TV, taught at universities, lectured around the world. And the latest step in my journey is to help you on yours, for us to keep growing together. On Be Anti-Racist, we discuss how to make the impossible possible and how to bring into being what modern humans have never known, a just and equitable world. You ready? Let's roll.
2: Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan, Chase Bank, NA member, FDIC.
1: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at
2: tmobile.com slash now. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future.
1: Let the shameful wall of exclusion finally come tumbling down.
0: More than 30 years ago, then-president George Herbert Walker Bush signed the Americans with Disabilities Act into law. It came after a long struggle by disability activists to extend the protections guaranteed by the Civil Rights Act.
3: This act is powerful in its simplicity. It will ensure that people with disabilities are given the basic guarantees for which they have worked so long and
1: so hard. Independence, freedom of choice, control of their lives, the opportunity to blend fully and equally into the rich
3: mosaic of the American mainstream.
0: The signing of the ADA took place a lifetime ago, and it was the culmination of more lifetimes of struggle. But what kind of progress have we made? My guest today is Rebecca Coakley, one of the country's leading voices on disability rights. I'm especially impressed by how well she centers race in her analysis and advocacy. She founded and directed the Disability Justice Initiative at the Center for American Progress and served as the Executive Director of the National Council on Disability. Recently, Coakley joined the Ford Foundation as the first program officer to lead a U.S.-based disability rights portfolio. She's also a California native, a mother, and someone who served in the Obama administration from 2009 to 2013. The day I sat down to talk with Rebecca happened to be the day that the closing arguments in the Derek Chauvin trial were presented in Minneapolis. It was an intense day for both of us. Hey, Rebecca.
3: Hey, how have you been?
0: (sighs) Man. um,
3: Here's a better question. How are you really?
0: I think I'm overwhelmed and traumatized and excited and outraged. It's this sort of weird mix of all of those emotions. What about you? How are you feeling in this moment?
3: You know, I think I had done a panel at NetRoot several years ago it was myself and a couple of folks from on the ground in Ferguson. And one of the things they said at the time that has stuck with me is that they believed that PTSD doesn't exist because what we're dealing with is a constant state of trauma, stress, and disorder. Wow. And it has been probably one of the thoughts that has stayed in my head consistently since then because the notion that there is a time and a space for recovery almost feels like a luxury. Exactly. It's trauma all around.
0: Exactly. And part of that, even as we talk, we have to be very cognizant about our terminology. Mm -hmm. And and so I think starting this conversation, how should we, what terminology should we be using when we're thinking about disability or the disabled community?
3: You know, to me, I love the word disability. I love it because... Of the beauty of the elasticity of the term. A, it was a word that was chosen by our elders, and it was the first time that people with disabilities formally declared what they wanted to be called. And then in, in the crafting of the ADA, the definition is any mental or physical impairment that impacts activities of daily life, a history or a record of such impairment.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And so the definition is broad enough to encompass the children in Flint, Michigan that are still several thousand days without clean drinking water and have acquired learning disabilities as a result of it. It's broad enough to include elders like Fannie Lou Hamer who were involuntarily sterilized. And it's broad enough to include people living with long haul COVID that are still trying to figure out how they navigate this space and time to me so often definitions are so restrictive. And this is instead about, does it impact how you eat, how you live, how you engage with your loved ones? And the beauty of that is that it varies with each person.
0: Definitely. And, And so how would you define ableism?
3: I always go to the definition by my colleague Talila Lewis and Dustin Gibson that talks about Ableism as a system that places value on people's bodies and minds based on societally constructed ideas of normalcy, intelligence, excellence, and productivity. These ideas are deeply rooted in anti-Blackness and eugenics, colonialism, and capitalism. And you don't have to be disabled to experience ableism. It's really grounded in the notion of who is valuable and worthy based on a person's appearance, and or their ability to produce, reproduce, excel, and the term that they use, and I think is really powerful, and or behave. Somebody might not have a choice how they appear in public, how they engage in public, but the way that society responds to them, if they walk with a limp, if they speak with a stutter, if they use a communication board to communicate. All of those things fall under the behavior piece, which I think is really critically important when we think about what it means to live in society.
0: Wow. And it, of course, makes me think about how people respond to certain people because of the color of their skin, because of the texture of their hair, because of the culture that they practice, because of the language that they speak. And then... When we start thinking about the intersection of ableism and racism, I think that's when it becomes tricky for many people, because I think in many ways, many Americans don't necessarily have a clear definition of racism, Uh nor do they have a clear definition of ableism, Uh (laughs) which then prevents them from understanding their intersection. And so how should we understand their intersection?
3: I mean, they're roots of the same tree. Yes, <laughs> it's funny. I actually went back through your book after reading it the first time, and every time there was something there that I was like, "Oh, it parallels here." I literally like drew a picture of a tree, thinking about even from the days of slavery and the discussion of things like drapetomania, the psychosis that went along with runaway slaves. Yes. The development and, frankly, still continued use in many circles of phrenology, the examination of the physicality of a group of people in order to determine superiority or not, many of those things are still common discussion today. Individuals who are slaughtered by law enforcement, at least 50% are people with disabilities, whether it be a mental illness, whether it be a speech impediment, whether it be Substance use, which counts if somebody is in recovery, hmm. even with the Derek Chauvin trial, hearing the reliance on ableist language as a justification for the numerous deaths of African Americans with disabilities. Yeah.
0: But then you have some who say, well, why are we still talking about disability? You know, Indeed, the ADA was passed in 1990. Aren't we living in a society where Folks with a disability, you know, have rights just as Black and Brown and Indigenous and people of color have their rights. So why are we talking about this? What do you say to those who, who make that claim? I see you already shaking your head because <laughs> it's the same thing with post-racial society, right?
3: <laughs> it is. We still deal with a seventy percent at least unemployment rate. Wow. We are the only community that it is actually grounded in statute that it is perfectly legal to pay disabled workers $2.15 or less a week. Disabled people still, if you're on supplemental security income, you can't get married or you'll lose your health insurance. We don't have marriage equality yet for disabled people in this country. You aren't allowed to maintain more than $2,000 in a checking account in a lot of cases. Yes, the ADA is 30 years old, but 80% of polling places are still inaccessible to us in one way, shape, or form. Progress has been made, but there has never been the level of enforcement that we need to actually see people with disabilities come anywhere near the level playing field that the law aspired to all those years ago. I'm Rebecca Coakley, and you're listening to Be Anti-Racist with Ibram X. Kendi.
0: I don't know if I've shared this with you. My, my brother has a mental disability. And I think one of the ways in which I've seen him experience the world as a Black boy and then ultimately a Black man with a disability is, is that it seems as if due to his Blackness, he has not provided the, the protections of someone who has a disability people just see him as Black?
3: Mm -hmm. Well, I think it even starts at the earliest days of education. I mean, we see if you're a white student and express certain behaviors, A, you're more likely to have access to better fine-tuned diagnostics Mm -hmm. and more likely to be accurately diagnosed with something along the lines of autism. But if you're a person of color, specifically, if you're a Black boy with a disability, you're more likely to be diagnosed as what they call EBD or emotionally, behaviorally disturbed. And just thinking about the language and what that says to a child, what that says to a family, what that says to a community. EBD sounds criminal. Yeah. And thinking about the fact that a majority of resources that are targeting families of young people with disabilities are in no way, shape, or form grounded in the values of communities of color. You know, my my husband, who you'll laugh about this since you're a FAM grad, my husband's a Howard grad. Oh, (laughs) jeez. And my husband has a vision impairment. Mm -hmm. And he grew up in South Carolina and didn't realize that he could get large print books until after he graduated Howard.
0: Wow.
3: He thought that everybody spent six plus hours a night doing the reading to keep up. It wasn't until right before he graduated where somebody was like, you know, you can get large print or you can get books on tape. And he talked to his parents about it. And his parents were like, we knew raising you in South Carolina, where the state only guarantees a minimally adequate public education, that if we would have advocated for accommodations for you, they would have automatically pushed you into special education. And that would have been it. And so I think there is a lot of fear. And it's grounded in what the Black community knows about segregation. You know, we've never talked about the rights of students with disabilities in the education space as civil rights. Yeah, We always talk about moving people to a separate classroom. And so I think there needs to be a lot of talking about what are the civil rights of students of color with disabilities, starting in education and moving throughout the world, because people aren't informed.
0: No, they're not. And for me there is nothing scarier than those times in which I knew my brother had to, in some capacity, interact with the police. Yeah, And specifically in recent years, I've begun to see, of course, through all sorts of cases and certainly videos, why we were always scared, why my parents were always scared. Mm -hmm. But it's not just, of course, parents of color who have children with disabilities. It's white parents too. Yeah. It seems as if this is a, a systemic issue of the police killing people with disabilities. And I think there's many ways in which we can talk about police violence. There are many ways in which police violence, specifically in the United States, demonstrates itself to be really chaos, to be a scourge. But for me, I don't know of a way that police violence is worse than when we're speaking about the number of people with disabilities who are killed, and then even the number of people with disabilities who are in prison, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the number of those people who are who are people of color.
3: And the number of people of color who leave the carceral system who have acquired disabilities while in there. Wow. Wow. because of the, the, the intense trauma of incarceration. And there's no connection to a community. There's no connection to understanding what your rights are.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: We deal mm-hmm. with situations where people who are deaf are not given qualified sign language interpreters when engaging with their lawyers. Wow. And it's, it is terrifying. And it starts in the schools. And I mean, that's the significant issue around school resource officers. We had a situation even with our son a few years ago where a paraprofessional in the after-school program thought it would be funny to pick up our son and put him on top of the refrigerator and walk away. Oh, gosh. And he's a little person like I am. So we tend to be a little wary of heights in general. His friends got very upset and went and got another teacher. By the time the other teacher had finally shown up, they had pulled him down, and so... Our son is very headstrong and didn't say anything to us. We got a call that night from both of his best friend's parents who were like, did you hear what happened to Jackson today? And, you know, my husband was talking to him that night and was like, so what happened? And he was like, oh, they thought it was funny and was like, jump off. And Pat, my husband was like, don't ever, don't listen to, to random average high people telling you anything. You're very lucky that you have friends that care about you, but that's the kind of thing you want to tell mom and dad about when you come home. Yeah. You know, having to teach them, having to acknowledge the hurt and that it's not okay and that they have a right to their bodily autonomy and they have a right to their privacy. And also at the same time, having that conversation around safety and being like, you're not going to be able to pick every fight. It's more important to me that you come home safe. Hmm. And I mean, that's the reality for so many families of kids with disabilities.
0: I think growing up, watching people... In hearing about people mistreat my brother, there were few things that could cause me to want to fight. Yeah. <laughs> and that was always at the top of the list. And he knew that. So he would not tell me, uh-huh. especially when it was something happening at school, even when it was something happening, you know, at work. Yeah. So, how should we seek to be allies? Because obviously, You know, ableism is so rampant and certainly people with disabilities want to protect their allies. And so I guess, how should we be responding? Should I have went and tried to fight everybody? Like, what should, should I be doing that now?
3: I think part of it is, is doing this, is starting the conversation and actively talking about it. Okay. I mean, we literally build buildings to ship off our disabled people. That's how hidden it is. Doris Day had a talk show in the 50s, and she talked about moving her sister home from an institution. And it was considered so radical. And that's still considered radical. When I worked in the Obama White House, one of my favorite things to do was to give White House tours because people wouldn't expect me to be the person giving the tour. Mm. I remember giving a tour to a civil rights, a well established civil rights leader who was like, oh, my gosh, it's so cute that you're here. Are you here as part of a charity program? Wow. And I remember being like, no, I'm President Obama's chief diversity officer. I'm in charge of diversity hiring for the administration, and I do tours on the weekend because it's fun, and it's important that people understand that there are disabled people that work here. And giving tours to young kids with disabilities in particular and, like, showing them the routes around the White House and showing them, oh, this is the ramp that FDR set up so that the press would never see him in a wheelchair. This matters, this is our history. Talking about your brother matters. Mm. And so I think what allies can really do is do the homework, use the Google, do your reading, talk to people, and talk about disability and ableism when you're talking about racism, Mm. when you're talking about homophobia, when you're talking about sexism. Acknowledge the commonalities, acknowledge the differences, I remember the first time I had heard any politician actually say the word ableism. It was Julian Castro. Mm. And I remember just being like, oh my gosh, he said it. And like tweeting his team and being like, holy buckets, he said it. They're like, we told you he would. You know, in this last year, we actually had 11 presidential candidates write disability platforms, which had never happened before. And it took a lot of work and it took a lot of honestly, like sitting with candidates and being like, no, let's help you practice saying the word disability because they would go to special needs. They would go to differently abled. And for us, the reason we like disability is it's a specific deliberate tie to civil rights. We've been taught to internalize that shame. We've been taught that we don't talk about it, that we act like it's not there. And then we don't get our needs met. We aren't included just as the notion of a colorblind society is bullshit. Yeah. So is the idea where people say, see the person, not the disability. No, I need you to see my disability and I need you to see it as a fundamental part of who I am.
0: And for able-bodied people to no longer imagine themselves as normal. Yeah. Just as white folks should not imagine themselves as as normal and men should not imagine themselves as
3: normal. Definitely.
0: In so many different ways, we've normalized particular groups not understanding that that normalization is based on on different forms of bigotry that, as you stated earlier, ultimately emerge from the same tree.
3: And particularly destigmatizing mental illness, I think, is one of the most important things that we can do. Mm. And really combating the notion that the mind and body are separate and that mental health is different than physical health when it is all one system.
0: How do we as a nation eliminate ableism, particularly from an anti-racist standpoint? I say eliminate because certainly there can be gradual approaches, which particularly may be easier for able-bodied people. But I mean, what should we be rallying around?
3: One is massive civil rights enforcement. We've never had enforcement of the ADA. Mm People will say, well, why don't you call the ADA when you get discriminated against? And I always joke, it's not like an 800 number that sends down a team of like customer service ninjas (laughs) that like build a ramp or like kick somebody's, but I wish it was like that. Gosh, that would take a lot of money, but actively fight for the enforcement of these laws, which I think is really critical.
0: Thinking through the enforcement of ADA, how can we structurally ensure that it is enforced. Do you think that the Justice Department <laughs> needs to be? Honestly,
3: beat- it, we need robust funding of civil rights enforcement across the board. Yeah. Across race, disability, LGBT, immigration. You know, doing each of these things in silos has not worked out for us well so far. Yeah. How do we walk in lockstep with each other? And hold each other accountable, but also hold the government accountable for what has not been done? How do we design reparations in a way that doesn't negatively impact the health insurance of Black disabled people? How do we think about immigration reform and the public charge in such a way that it lifts up those that need personal care assistance? It goes beyond thinking about our movements and silos and saying, you know, how do we actually get at those that are most directly impacted?
0: And what's fascinating is I think you have able-bodied people who will say, well, if we do have well-funded enforcement and regulations that ensure people with disabilities have opportunities and resources, people consistently think, well, then somehow I'm going to be punished or hurt or deprived, Mm -hmm. as opposed to I think what you're speaking to is if we truly did have robust enforcement of our civil rights laws, it would benefit almost everyone.
3: (laughs) And I think we continue to be told this from white, non-disabled, cis society, that civil rights are extra and that we're asking for special treatment. We hear that all the time when the reality is, is like, no, this has been the law for 30 years. Yeah. I mean, I should be able to go to the bank around the corner from my house here in Washington, D.C. without having to scale the wall to reach the ATM. And it's not about extra. It's about basic fundamental access to the civil rights we all have as human beings on this planet, or we should have as human beings on this planet.
0: And it's also present and urgent right now because we're seeing a rise in people with disabilities after COVID. Many of them who are struggling to get disability benefits.
3: Yeah. You know, they said roughly one third of people with COVID will have long haul symptoms. So we're talking at least 10 million plus new disabled people in our country that might not realize that they count under the ADA, might not realize that when they go back to work, they can ask for time off or an amended schedule to access a doctor or a therapist. And I think now more than ever coming out of the pandemic, I mean, COVID has highlighted what disabled people knew decades ago. Like, we are viewed as disposable.
0: Mm.
3: And yes, folks might not be ready to identify politically or culturally as part of the disability community, but we have a fundamental responsibility to be resources to them, to meet them where they are and help support them in this transition because we do know better. We do know how it works. We do know how to deal with these systems And what our rights and responsibilities are under law, and nobody's informing them.
0: Precisely. And so I suspect people are thinking, okay, what can they do? We've spoken broadly, but if we can maybe speak individually to people who who may have realized for the first time the ways in which they have upheld ableism, they have upheld its intersection. with racism, they realize that they can no longer be passive, you know, in this fight for the human rights of everyone. Where should they start?
3: I think you start acknowledging ways that you've behaved in an ableist mindset to the people that you love. Mm -hmm. I mean, people with disabilities exist in one third of households. So if we're not in your house, we're your neighbor on the right or the left. We're your brother, we're your sister, we're your parents, and acknowledging The learning is a first step. What could you be doing differently or more boldly? It is just like retraining your brain on acknowledging racial bias and racist policies. People think that disability is sort of over there, when once you start noticing, you start noticing it everywhere. It is something that you walk over as blandly as you walk over a curb cut without the recognition that. Back in the 60s and 70s, disabled people literally took pitchforks to sidewalks in in Denver to be able to get through their community.
0: Wow. It is pretty apparent to me that one cannot be anti-racist while still being ableist. And that's why I was so happy we could have this conversation because I think for many people who are indeed striving to be anti-racist, they may not realize the ways in which they're still being prevented from moving along on this journey due to their unacknowledged or unrecognized ableism or the ways in which they're in denial. Then I would say probably it's the same way the other way around. You can't really be anti-ableist if you're also not striving to be anti-racist.
3: I think that's so true. And I think... It is such an opportunity for greater solidarity, greater learning, greater co-conspiratorship. Yes. Especially because this work is hard. Yeah. This work is unyielding. It's never ending. And I look forward to us continuing this conversation going forward because as you and I both know, the work's not going to be done tomorrow.
0: It isn't. And I'm certainly still learning and growing and recognizing the ways in which we indeed need to be co-conspirators. So I just want to thank you, Rebecca, for taking a few minutes with me to really talk this through.
3: Definitely. This was fun. We'll do this again.
0: Definitely. Able-bodied people of color face racism. White people with disabilities face ableism, but neither group faces the twin forces of ableism and racism like people of color with disabilities. I admire the way Rebecca confronts racism and ableism and disability justice and racial justice. She is resolute in defending the humanity of people with disabilities, and we must be too. So how can we fight back? We must know what to fight and how to fight. Read books on ableism. Read memoirs of people of color with disabilities. Read their essays and stories. Understand their experiences and perspectives and histories. Knowledge can be the wellspring of empathy and compassion. We learn to change ourselves to change our society. Join and support anti-racist organizations battling ableism. Support anti-ableist organizations battling racism. Check the show notes for a link to our website. There, you'll find links to further readings, resources, and organizations that are focused on this work. It takes you. It takes me. It takes us. It takes eternal hope. It takes opening our minds, overcoming fear, being vulnerable, daring ourselves to revolutionize ourselves, challenging power and policy to revolutionize society, amassing the courage and conviction to be anti-racist.
3: Be Anti-Racist is a production of Pushkin Industries and iHeartMedia. It is written and hosted by Dr. Ibra Max Kendi and produced by Alexandra Garreton with associate producer Brittany Brown. Our engineer is Ben Talladeg, our editor is Julia Barton, and our showrunner is Sasha Mathias. Our executive producers are Lita Moulad and Mia LaBelle. Many thanks to Tammy Nguyen and Dr. Heather Sanford at the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University for all of their help. At Pushkin, thanks to Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find Dr. Kendi on Twitter at DREBram and on Instagram at IbramXK. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at Pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Your piece that you wrote in The Atlantic is still one of the most circulated pieces among our Black disabled activists all the time. They talk about that piece all the time. So I promise several of them. I will continue to tell Ibram how important that piece is.
0: Oh my gosh. (laughs) Well, thank you. And please tell them I said hello. (laughs)
1: Enter now at tmobilecom unconventional Awards. unconventionalawards. See you there.
3: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career.